Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a celebration of books. I'm Mikko Gallagher. In today's episode, respected journalist Christine Zivika in conversation with Tasneem Chopra. Zivika's new book, Leaning Out, maps a decade of stasis on the gender equality front in Australia and why the pandemic has led to a breakthrough. As the historic 2020 Women's March attests, a generation of younger women are speaking truth to power and changing the way we think of women in the workplace. This is the third book in the Crikey Read series and is essential reading for us all. Here's the host of the discussion, Readings bookseller, Andrew Cornish. Good evening, everybody. On behalf of Readings, I'd like to welcome you all here tonight. And I'd, before we get started, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are gathered here tonight, uh, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and pay my respects and our respects uh, to their elders past, present and emerging. And also further acknowledge that this land that we are on uh, always has and always will be Aboriginal land. Before we get going tonight, I'll just give you a little rundown of how the, the night will proceed. I won't introduce Christina uh, because Tasneem will do that for us. Um, um, but after we sort of get going, there'll be a conversation, as you know. Um, once you're all convinced of how important it is to, for us all to make change, there'll be an opportunity for you all to buy as many copies of the book as you can possibly carry. Um, Christina will then be happy for you to sign it. Um, and yeah, there's, there's some wine here. Feel free to sort of help yourself. Um, so Tasneem Chopra will be hosting tonight. Uh, she is a cross-cultural competency, inclusion, equity, diversity consultant and media presenter. Um, so if I can ask you all to please give a very warm welcome to Christina. Uh, and Tasneem. Thank you. It's a delight to be here on a Tuesday in Carlton, outdoors, seeing people and talking about an incredible book. I too would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land where we're all gathering here today, in particular paying my respects to elders past, present and emerging, noting that we're on the lands of a community and a culture that was grounded in storytelling and sharing knowledge in an, you know, in, in the oral tradition. So I feel like today is a beautiful extension of that. And of course, my guest speaker, uh, guest guest author is is Christina Zivica. For those of you who know Christina, she really needs no introduction. Um, but for those of you who are new to this space and this work. I haven't got Christina's bio on me, but I'm going from memory here. So Christina is a She's an accomplished writer, journalist, researcher. She has worked in the human rights space, both in the UK. She's, she's been a journalist and a prolific writer with roots in America. Yes. Um, and in Australia, she's done a lot of work, and this is how I've got to know her, in the space of women's economic empowerment, um, gender pay gap, equity, human rights, women's rights, um, and basically all things that matter. In a, in a nutshell, that's that's where she's at. And this particular topic and the genesis for Leaning Out, the book which we're all here about, so much of it stems from her passion, which is seeing, identifying and outing what are the inequities that women continue to endure in, the, in, you know, in an economic space and how that contributes to their broader um, inequities in well-being, in how they're seen and how they're treated. Everything from, you know, media depiction to promotion at work to sexual harassment, to, to violence against women in all those different capacities. So much of it is rooted in the way that they're economically um, situated. So, Christina, welcome to your book launch. That sounds weird. <laughs> welcome to your Melbourne book launch. I want to ask you about this book, Leaning Out. It's, it's a power book in terms of the, the, the density of information and knowledge that you've put across in 100 pages. It's... I feel like there was a sense of urgency about the book, not only in the tonality of it, but the timing. 
Why? I think that the book kind of wrote itself. Um, and I think many of the people here tonight, and thank you for coming out in such large numbers. It's really lovely to see you all um, contributed to that sense of urgency and contributed to the writing of it. So as I celebrate collective action and um, feminist collective roots, I really want to acknowledge the contributions that many of you made in this room today to my thinking. Um, book started with Arwen Summers at Hardy Grant, who I've been talking to for quite a few years about a book. Christina, I think you've got a book in you. Um, Arwen sent me a message on LinkedIn years ago and said, I'd like to talk to you about a book. I didn't know Arwen yet, but I'm glad to call her a friend now. And I was at the time shopping at Kmart. We had just come out of our very last lockdown and I was buying some clothing for my eldest daughter who is here tonight, who had grown about 20 feet over the last lockdown and didn't fit in anything. And Arwen said, I have an idea. Do you have time? And we were across the street from the cafe where we regularly meet. And um, I said, actually, I'm right across the street from our usual, I can be there in 20 minutes. And Arwen said, great, I'll see you there. And that was sort of the genesis of it. Arwen said to me, I think you have a book in you. We've got this new Crikey Read series coming out. I think you have something important and powerful to say about the pandemic and women. And the idea of the book was born right there, and it was six months from concept to finish, um, which for someone like me, who is a journalist, a feminist journalist who works in this space, was such a gift to be able to write 100 pages really swiftly to get something out into the sphere, the public sphere, at a time when all of these issues are so incredibly topical. It came out the same week as the Job Summit, uh, which we'll get to my, re my reaction to the Job Summit. Claire, <laughs> you're here. <laughs> yes. And I was just, I, it's so important and powerful to have for journalists like me a kind of long form opportunity to think through some of the thornier issues, mm -hmm. but do it a bit more expansively, but still get something out in a really, really timely way. So readers are supporting journalists to do this work when you buy work. Um, in, and, and I know a few different publishers are doing it now that's in this format and these mm -hmm. kinds of series, because it's really making an important contribution, mm -hmm. I think, to long-form journalism. Yes. And it's also supporting journalists like me who have expertise in social issues and you know, we are always happiest when we can get our ideas out there at a time when we think it will make a difference. And that's probably one of the things that I'm proudest of about this book is that with that six month turnaround and the new context in which it it entered, you know, with the with the election, which I write about in the book and, you know, the change of government and the job summit and just all the conversations that we're having now, I really do think that the pandemic has led to a breakthrough. So I was happy to be able to get those ideas out there at this really crucial time. Absolutely. And I think we're quite lucky and fortunate as readers that publishers are taking that stand, that they're looking at the confluence of journalists with expertise in a field and realising there's a form of conveying that knowledge in a, in a really approachable and consumable in a book form. So kudos to, to the publishers for that run. Now, just getting into the actual book itself, okay? So the book is Leaning Out. That's the title of the book. And in, an, in a nutshell, and I'm, I'm just quoting from the book here, but you do talk about the veneer of faux feminism, how topics like girl power, girl boss, lean in and choice feminism, I mean, they all sound pretty good, really. On the outside, yeah, they right? They, they sound like they were well-intended. 
They sound like they were part of the solution, but it turns out, in fact, that they were paving the way for what was a very problematic experience of feminism. What went wrong? So Lean In came out 10 years ago, and it had a dazzlingly simple proposition. Through sheer will and individual self-empowerment, women could overcome decades, decades of gender inequality in the workplace. And that seemed, for a lot of individual women, I'm sure, extremely dazzling. It's a very simple solution to what we know is a complex problem. Part of what I do in the book is to go back in history a little bit. Um, we have some historians here to try to set the context for why that would have been so enticing at that particular juncture in time, particularly to go back to the 90s and girl power. And that was really the feminism that marked my youth. And you know, feminism was coming off of a bruising, bruising decade in the 1980s, uh, which was really well captured in Susan Faludi's iconic book, Backlash. And there was a real sense that feminism needed a rebranding, a refresh, as they called it. Um, so from that, girl power was born. And one of the questions that I ask in the book is, what happens when girl power goes up? And there's a logical extension from girl power, when she grows up, she becomes lean in. And through different twists and turns and manifestations, this kind of choice feminism, this kind of individually focused feminism had certain reiterations over the course of the years, kind of finally landing us with the girl boss. But all of it was cut from the same cloth in the sense that it always posited that women were the problem. We needed to fix women. And it also had the really kind of enticing prospect of not having to do the hard graft of collective organizing to tackle the structures. And here in Australia, because this book, I mean, there's been a lot of analysis. I think there's a real appetite now, um, particularly after Roe v. Wade in the US with Sheryl Sandberg recently stepping down, um, a reappraisal of her legacy. There's a real appetite to reappraise what a decade of this quote-unquote empowerment feminism has delivered. And I really set out to tell that story very much in the Australian context. So two things happened in 2013. Lean In was published, but we also had an election here in Australia. And my theory is that there was this kind of unholy marriage, that's how I describe it, between this dominant strain of lean-in empowerment feminism, which was unleashed on the world, and Australia was not immune to that, and this you know, coalition government that just loved it. Uh, just to give you an example, uh, as is my habit, because I'm a bit of a geek, every year, um, well, for the last few years, when the coalition government would publish their women's budget statement, I would look at it to see the number of times the word choice would appear. That's not geeky at all. Then I would do it, it was simple. You know, I'd just do a word search on it. I'd pull up the document. I did it every year for three years. I think that certain ministers in the um, former government were not very um, big fans of me. So in the 2022 women's budget statement, choice appeared 14 times. Discrimination appeared seven times. Four of those were in Kate Jenkins' job title, the Sex Discrimination Commissioner. <laughs> so that just gives you an indication of what we were dealing with in this unholy marriage. This was a government for whom discrimination didn't exist except in somebody's job title, but it wasn't something that we needed to collectively address or tackle. And what was the price that we paid for a decade of empowerment feminism here in Australia? 
So if you look a few statistics, because I, I like me some statistics <laughs> to tell that story. So Australia continued its uninterrupted backward slide in the World Economic Forum's global gender gap ranking, slipping from 15th out of 153 countries in 2006 to 50th place in 2021. So that's a dramatic fall of 35 places. But if you, again, are a geek like me, and you go through the global gender gap index year by year, which I did when I was researching this book, most, if not all of that happened from 2013 onwards. Interesting. The last report that the Sex Discrimination Commissioner did into sexual harassment was done in 2013. And at that time, one in four women were experiencing sexual harassment. When Kate Jenkins did the more recent uh, report, it was one in three. So what had a decade of this rah-rah, girl boss, lean in, you've got all the solutions, it had delivered us, you know, it had undermined women's economic security, and it had delivered us more sexual harassment. Well, you talk about you know, the, one of the fundamental issues with when you're unpa unpacking the lean-in moment is that it is on the individual to, to, to be the agent of change without addressing the structural issues that come into play, right? Within an Australian context, can you explain how did that manifest? What is it about the Australian environment, political or otherwise, that enabled the disintegration of, you know, protecting women and, and you know, yeah, keep, keeping them safe from being exploited? Well, I, th I think what I tried to do in the book is highlight how over the course of the pandemic, we had a few kind of cascading realizations about how this brand of feminism wasn't working for us. And one of those aha moments, sorry, Oprah, was around care and the value of care, which is something, again, that we need to kind of collectively tackle. So I have a chapter in the book called From Career Feminism to Care Feminism. And I recount in that chapter, and again, that's not an individual solution. The fact that we undervalue the work, the, the unpaid and paid care work that women do is precisely because we expect women to do it for free. And that's not something that we've really been talking about for the last 12 years. We've been talking about women on boards and women in the C-suite, and that's the solution to the gender pay gap. But that actually counts for around one-fifth of the gender pay gap. Mm. And I... I think that that became obvious to people. If you, if you think about the different ways that we can renew and remake a feminist discourse in Australia from the lessons that we've learned from the pandemic, I think a few things sort of struck me when I was writing that book. And one is around this kind of care feminism, I call it. And I tell this story about working in the Equality and Human Rights Commission probably about 15 years ago, and a very earnest policy officer coming up to me with this paper about the undervaluing of women's work and saying, oh, Christina, I know that there are sexier issues that we can talk about, but this is really important. Can you please like work some comms magic and try to make somebody care about this? And I read through that report, and there was a line in there that I have never forgotten, which was that the undervaluing of women's work was contributing to a ticking time bomb of care. And I think during the pandemic, we reached the end of the fuse of that particular time bomb. And we can see what that looks like all around us. So, do you, think, do you think it took a pandemic to really change the way that feminism was seen in this country? Sadly, I think it did, yeah. I, well, I think a few things happened. I think the pandemic contributed to that breakthrough moment. In terms of women's safety, which I also write about in the book, which 
you and I have both been working on <laughs> together and apart um, in different ways over the last few years, I think we can both say that there were probably a number of things that were contributing to the explosive moment that was Brittany Higgins coming forward with her allegations of sexual harassment in Parliament. That was particularly, it was so shocking that that happened in what I think most people erroneously would consider the safest building or the most secure building in the country. But I don't think that would have happened or been as explosive if all of the groundwork leading up to that hadn't taken place that sort of set the stage for that moment. And I think that it's the same in, in the care and care economy and on all of the issues, early years, education and care that I write about in the book where I think that we're at this moment of breakthrough. Um, there are, and I pay tribute to them in the acknowledgements of the book, there are so many people, I think, who built a bridge to that moment, particularly in a very difficult <laughs> decade for feminism and feminist activism in Australia. And I notice, I mean, you, you do go into detail about the role that Sam Austin has played. This iconic uh, opportunity she had to talk about, you know, the big issues facing feminism, it was last year. Yeah, and she took this opportunity as someone with a very clear, definitive CEO mantle to talk about care feminism and the care economy. And how are we, even at this executive level, not even addressing this issue? And if we don't get this right, we're not going to get equity right. And I think the, the way that you have... You know, address that in this in, in this book is is as important as the intersectional lens of who makes up the carers in our economy. So, can you tell me a bit about how do we intersectionally address the expanse of women who do the hard work but don't get seen and certainly don't get remunerated? Yeah. Well, I often say that the beautiful thing about the gender pay gap if you can say that anything about the gender pay gap is beautiful, is that it is a composite figure that encapsulates the myriad of injustices that women experience in the workplace. The problem with the gender pay gap figure in Australia is that it is not encapsulating the myriad of injustices that different women yes. experience in the workplace. And you and I have had conversations about this before. So when I first moved to Australia, I think that there was a sense from a lot of feminists that the gender pay gap, it had really, there was a sense that it had been captured by corporate feminism and that it was exclusively about women on boards and women in the C-suite. And I thought that that was a real shame, but I could see how that had happened because of the dominant advocacy of, of those types of organizations around the gender pay gap. And a lot of the solutions were coming from that kind of space about women and women in leadership. And we weren't having those conversations around what you know other th the other drivers of the gender pay gap for example the undervaluing of women's work mm -hmm. contributes around a fifth of it but the most important thing is and there's this other expression that's very common in feminism um looking at you claire what gets measured gets managed people love to say that um it's launched a thousand feminist data ships we're going to measure it and we're going to manage it that's not always true because i can think of a lot of things that we've measured but we haven't managed for example <laughs> Uh, pregnancy discrimination, 
happens to one in two women, last measured it in 2013. All those recommendations are sitting in a drawer somewhere. Anyway, I digress. We do not measure the size of the gender pay gap for diverse women in this country. And they do that in the US, they do that in the UK, other places that I've worked, they have a black women's equal pay day. Um, and that, again, if there's something beautiful about the gender pay gap is that it captures the myriad of injustices that women experience in the workplace and then you can tackle them. But you looked into, is it the champions of change, the male champions of change, and uh, you sort of probed them about coming clear about, you know, what's your what's your rating as CEO executives of the yes. ASX 100? How are you tracking on gender yes. equity and the gender pay gap? There are a lot of people who probably wish I had a hobby. <laughs> <laughs> This is your hobby, and we're this grateful is my for hobby. it. This brings yes. me joy. Um, <laughs> yes, so I I can be a little bit annoying. So th uh, this is one of the what I call my misadventures in power posing, which I write about in the book, um, which kind of casts me as kind of arriving here on Australian shores, sort of 10, 11 years ago, and looking around and going. You know, what's going on here? Um, and one of my what's going on here moments was uh, Male Champions of Change put out a press release um, basically saying, rah, rah, our male champions have agreed to eliminate like-for-like -like payback gaps in their organizations. And it received this glowing media coverage everywhere. And I was the one person who put my hand up and said, didn't they just agree not to break the law? And it's been the law for nearly 50 years. Like, why are we all <laughs> so super excited about this? I don't get it. Um, and then a little while later, I got a report from F Future Super. And it must be said that um, the women in super organizations, thank you very much, have done some great work because they know what um, deeply entrenched feminized poverty looks like for their members. So they, and they've done a lot of great campaigning around it. So they put out a report and it was, it, it showed, you know, what different, um, what was it, like, top 500 organizations were going to do um, and commitments that they made. So I looked through that and roughly half of the male champions of change organizations refuse to publicly disclose the size of their gender pay gap at their organization. So they were happy to commit not to break the law, <laughs> but they weren't happy to publish the size of the gender pay gap at their organization, which is something that I know contributed or is contributing to change in the UK. It's been the law there for, I think, five years now, and it's something that I, I campaigned for in a previous job, and it's something that will... There's a word will, for that, yeah. isn't there? Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, this so. hypocrisy comes to mind. Yeah. But just on that, <laughs> on that issue, on that issue, okay. So and this is a quote again from either a an interview that you've done or a podcast that I've listened to where you've spoken, but this alongside Lean In, um, there's a strain of good men, this rhetoric where we give men cookies for doing the bare minimum. You know, thanks, boys, for seeing us. But So this, masculin this masculinist ag agenda, so to speak, does have a credibility problem. Yes. How do we begin to fix that? <sighs> By expecting more... Um, you know, the next time we get one of those press releases that says we're not going to break the law. <laughs> I hope in this new context that there will be more people who put their hand up. And I think we've experienced a paradigm shift. I think we expect more. You know, we, we all know that um, the good men movement and various 
organizational iterations of that in Australia has led to it having a bit of a credibility problem. I think that's what I was alluding to in that tweet. Um, you know, I won't name anyone in particular, but I think we all know who I'm talking about, or there are few. Um, but we do need men to be part of the solution. So I think that that's uh, an important conversation to have of, of how to do that. Yeah. Okay. And I guess, you know, as segueing from that, the Jobs Summit was held recently. Mm. And before we go into, you know, your feelings about the Jobs Summit, tell us a little bit about the anecdote of how you, we all thought you were there because you were <laughs> tweeting so prolifically. <laughs> Um, and we're talking like a tweet a minute, literally. Just set us up. How did that happen? I was very excited about the job summit. <laughs> like super excited about it. Um, and I can only liken it to this. If, you've, if you're like me and I know that there's, I'm not the only one, there are a few of you in this room who have kind of toiled in the wilderness over the last 10 years in these difficult circumstances for feminism and for gender equality that I write about in the book, when you have a change of election and then you have a job summit that is prepared to platform people to say the things that were previously unsayable, it is really, it can feel transformative and exciting. So I was actually watching it on my phone. <laughs> so I was running it on my phone and I had my headphones in and multitasking like a queen and popped onto the high street in Northcote to get my coffee where I bumped into Eve and Claire. <laughs> and I said, oh, I'm so excited. I'm getting a bit teary <laughs> because I'm watching the job summit. <laughs> <laughs> I was weepy over the job summit. Was I the only one who got a, anybody else? No, sure, we, we were all we were all. Everybody weeping got a bit weepy, uh, but it just represented such a moment of potential, which I think also represents this moment of transformative change that that we're in. Um, so many things that I know I and others have been campaigning on, writing about. There's just an opportunity to get some things done, but there's also an opportunity to say some of the things that were unsayable, like to see, I know that this government's not really keen on parental leave reform. Well, it's not to say that they're not keen on it, but the definite message that there's that I'm getting is that it might be something for later. I have some views on that. I don't think it's for later. I think it's for now, but, um, you know, deficit, pandemic, trillion dollars of debt, whatnot. Um, but all of the people who are at the job summit were still on those powerful platforms making the case for it, saying it, and I can't, um, saying why it needed to be done. I can't, you know, I was just reminded by Angela Priestley, my women's agenda publisher, when we were talking about that and how these women had these platforms to say some things that were probably, um, and push for things that were probably unpopular in the halls of our current government. We were remembering that the previous government had announced that they were going to have a national plan for women's economic security. Anybody remember that? Yeah. And then wouldn't tell anybody about it. And they apparently had a summit and they wouldn't tell anybody about it. <laughs> so, um, wow. and then when I tried to find out what was in the plan, they wouldn't tell anybody about it. So, um, you know, who was platformed, who talked about that plan, I don't know. So it was just such a paradigm shift that we're having these yeah. conversations yeah. now. It's such a privilege for me to be able to contribute to those conversations with this book um, and I think some of the conversations that the book has helped start. 
No, I think your, your book, the timing has been has been impeccable to, on that regard. Look, I'm going to dabble on a few more issues that I really want to get to, but then I will also open up the floor to to everyone here. Your book sits in the context or sits in in conversation with other feminist luminaries, and you do refer to Susan Faludi, and uh, how in the New York Times she. She, as a New York Times writer, she's talked about how feminism made its pact with the cause celeb and how it used the celebrity title and influence and, and weight of, you know, women influences, for want of a better word, which hasn't really panned out well for us. Um, case in point, Sex and the City and the kind of role modelling that we saw in that context. What, um, what do you think, how, how do you think feminism lost its power in this particular way? I write about that in, in the book, and again, I, I, try, I think a lot of people um, and feminists are having, there's a real appetite for having these conversations, to so have this reappraisal. What, like I said, what has 10 years of this so-called empowerment feminism delivered? There's a question in America, very unique to America, how did we lose Roe? I think mm. that was that, was that visceral, visceral sense of urgency that was in Susan Faludi's piece. Like, how did this happen? How did feminism lose its particular political power? Mm -hmm. And she was answering that question in the US context. Um, how did feminism lose its political power in Australia? I allude to that a little bit um, in the book. I write about how the, you know, the feminist organizations that could have taken that more collective fight were actively undermined. And I've also written about that in, in some of my journalism as well. So, um, What are the key factors underpinning that undermining? A few things. A lot of women's organizations are funded by government to deliver services and their gagging clauses. So this has been part of the previous government's war on charities. So there are gagging clauses in their contracts. Um, the whole DGR status, if that's issue, so that is being able to raise tax deductible funds. Mm. So just give you an example. The governor general, a, a minister can wave their wand and give a charity DGR status, most charities spend years trying to get it, and mm -hmm. it's very hard. Um, so the governor general for this leadership charity, just the minister waved a wand for a charity that didn't exist, didn't have a business plan, didn't have a board. Um, but most charities fight very hard to get it. And then over the last couple of years, the charities regulator, the ACNC, has been launching this war, kind of bullying charities into silence, which is a, something I wrote about for the Saturday paper, threatening them with the loss of their DG, DGR status. So that has had what, what it's, uh, let's just call it what it is. It's had a chilling effect on the charitable sector, and it's most certainly had a chilling effect on the women's sector. Has that continued with this government? No. Well, this government has promised to undo, Andrew Lee has made a very, very strong promise. Uh, that, they're, that they will discontinue or do away with this ongoing war on charities and um, implement legislative reform to make sure it never happens again. Um, so I, I would definitely like to be part of that conversation. Um, I would like to see the women's organizations. It just, it, it's one of those things that has baffled me since I moved here. Like, why would you not want the women's organizations that work at the coalface of these issues to c publicly and vocally be contributing to the conversation we're having, just 
for example, around women's safety, why would you not want their experience to be part of that conversation when they work at the coalface of these well, issues? I think your book answers that question yeah. of exactly why they don't want that conversation mm. to be had. You spend a lot of time talking about burnout, all right, and the corporatization of white feminism and how led to a burnout of women in a way that we just don't question, especially during the pandemic. The fact that we were burning the candle not at two ends but at three ends at times and being expected to do it without question, all right. So to that extent, I mean, that's part of the undoing of what Lean In created was this you just do it all because you are a woman and if you do it all you're a superwoman and uh, don't expect anyone to come and save you because you know that you know you've got you've got it in you you know you're you're all power to you rah 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 how has the burnout that feminism has created been resolved with the way that you're looking at leaning out so lean in empowerment's feminism solution for burnout, unsurprisingly, was also individual. So that led to the creation of this kind of wellness, feminist wellness industrial complex. So a couple of years ago, I got a press release that said it was from the International Wellness Conference or something like that. And it said, these are the top three wellness trends for this year. And I kid you not, feminist wellness was one of them. And empowerment feminism- What does that mean? Well, empowerment feminism's solution to burnout was individual. It was oh. you, all of you individually need to work on your resilience. And that manifested in a number of quite silly things, including um, what my friend Neela once told me about was Pilates and a pencil skirt. <laughs> I think at a women in surgery conference, lots of just fairly <laughs> silly things. But the focus was always on the individual. And empowerment candles. And empowerment candles. Yes. yes, yes, burn the candles. There's another candle you can burn, Taz. Yes, <laughs> um, and that obviously, I think the pandemic showed a lot of people, um, perhaps some for the first time, like just how useless those nostrums were. Uh, so that's another one of those kind of cascading realizations that I tried to facilitate when you're reading the book. Um, and I, I quote um, a doctor in the US who works on women's wellness, and she said, it's not burnout, it's betrayal. Mm. And her focus in her bio is on how structures fail women. And since I've written the book, there are a few chapters that people keep telling me have really resonated with them. And the burnout chapter and the care chapter, care feminism chapter, are probably the two biggest ones. And I think that this has definitely resonated with, with readers because it is so much their experience. There's always been a gender gap in burnout. Women were always more likely to experience it, but that doubled. doubled. And an intersectional ethnic minority women, black women, First Nations women were all even more likely to experience it, just like their gender pay gap <laughs> is bigger than that of white women. So here we go to what gets measured and gets managed. What does it say about the things that we don't measure as feminists? Does that mean that we don't want to manage them? So I think the burnout issue is really indicative of one of the key ways that the pandemic has led to a paradigm shift in how we are diagnosing the problem and what we think the solutions are. But if we're so exhausted, which we are, and, and there's been this great resignation and a great exhaustion that's followed that and a great burnout, 
how do we find the energy to address the structural inequity? Oh, God, Taz, if I had the answer to that one. I just want an answer. Just, uh, sometimes people say rage is fuel. So maybe... As ang is that, I mean, going back to the angry feminist trope, yeah. are, are, you, are you promoting we become angry feminists? Yes, <laughs> I am. And I also make this point in the book that, um, you know, anger has had a bit of a rebranding. So it turns out anger is an approach emotion, meaning it f gives you the fuel to approach the problem and fix it. So anger is the new empowerment. Anger is the new okay. empowerment. Be okay. an angry like feminist because it will help you fix things. <laughs> it will keep you going. So maybe just the fact that, you know, I turn this over to the floor, but maybe the fact that things got so bad and there is some hope in the sense that it's led to this paradigm shift around the conversation where we're inclined to look at the structures and not the individuals for the solutions will give people that um, impetus to just push forward and keep those conversations going and make that change happen. Let's see, and I'm, I'm going to, my last question to you, following from that is you indicate that you are optimistic about feminism in Australia, okay? So here we are <laughs> at 2022, new government, kind of a new vibe, we're leaning out, not leaning in. Where does feminism land in, say, five or ten years' time, you know, in, in your eyes, if we get it right? One of the examples that I give of things that make, make me optimistic is um, the Respect at Work inquiry and, um, you know, Kate Jenkins' work around sexual harassment. And I feel like, you know, that was born of, of many, many years of work Hundreds of individuals contributed to it, submissions, victim survivors, experts, organizations, and we got these 55 very concrete recommendations. And um, that's just a testament to what that hard slog of, you know. But are those recommendations sitting in a drawer? They're not sitting in a drawer anymore. We prized them out of Christian Porter's drawer. <laughs> <laughs> The irony, I know. Oh, wow. I know. They sat there for a whole year in Christian Porter's door. I That's offer fair. that without any further comment. But when, you know, Brittany Higgins came forward with her allegations, though that report was there, and mm -hmm. that moment was literally standing on the shoulders of all of the individuals and organizations that contributed to that inquiry, made that inquiry happen. That was not, that's a testament to the power of collective action in my mind. And I think it's just a model of what we can achieve. And I can see that what makes me op optimistic is that I can see, because I follow these things closely, I write about them a lot. I can see opportunities on so many fronts. I can see this wellspring of will from many and from the new government. And so that ultimately makes me optimistic. But I, I'll just sort of end with a quote also, um, which gives that sort of sense of urgency as well. And this is a quote that I often, often use, which is a Rebecca Solnit quote about hope and what hope means to me, which is very active, which is hope isn't a lottery ticket that you sit with in the dark hoping to be lucky. It is an axe that you use to break down a door in an emergency. 
And I come back to that. I have that book on my bedside table. I come back to it time and time again. And I feel like particularly these cascading realizations have led to that sense of emergency. And now there's that collective forging of that axe and the reaching for that axe. Guys, I get angry, grab an axe. Okay, that's where we're heading. No, thank you so much, Kristen. You can stream previous episodes of The Readings Podcast at our website, where you'll also find all kinds of other recommendations for great books, music, film, and TV. You can also sign up to e-news or to receive our free monthly newsletter, The Readings Monthly. The Readings Podcast is produced by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. All episodes of this show are recorded and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to acknowledge traditional owners of this land and pay my earnest respects to elders past, present and emerging. Thank you for listening.